This is Larry Lessig. I met my guest today first in 1998 when she spoke at the Berkman Center for Internet and Society. Kim Palese had been an early employee at Sun Microsystems, where she was the founding product manager for Java. She then left Sun Microsystems and co-founded Marimba, where she served as CEO until 2000 and chairman of the board until the company was sold to BMC Software. She then served as CEO of SpikeSource, a company that sold software to automate open source application management. But the startup that we're talking about today, or maybe better, celebrating today, is AI-driven technology for understanding and surfacing common understanding within a community. That idea, me celebrating AI, might strike you as odd, at least recognizing what I've said earlier in this series, because so much of this season has been doomsplaining AI. But the key to recognize is that AI is good at what it's told to do. And if what it's told to do is good or valuable or edifying for society, it can be very good at doing useful or valuable or edifying things for society. And the edifying thing that the technology behind Kim's current company is doing is finding a way to build common understanding or recognize common understanding within a diverse public, or put better, differently, it's a way to understand what we believe that's better than the standard way we understand what we believe today, which is polling. In this sense, this episode is a perfect complement to the last. In the last episode, we saw how the idea of representative democracy is not exhausted by elections. There are other ways to craft representative democracy that don't depend on elections. And in this episode, we'll see how the idea of understanding what a people think is not exhausted by the invention of George Gallup, public opinion poll. It is available through other technologies too, technologies that turn out to be better and fairer in understanding at least complicated ideas than a simple poll. This is a hopeful story today about technology in a space filled with doom. And again, I know this because my brand has been doom, and yet I like this technology. Stay tuned. Kim, thanks so much for talking with us. You're building um, and have deployed um, an extraordinarily interesting application of AI technologies. Why don't you introduce us to what you've built and where you think it can go? Absolutely. Happy to. And thank you. Thanks, Larry, for having me on the podcast. Um, maybe it might help to take a step back and, and just give you a little background on my own involvement in AI. Uh, in fact, my first job was at the first AI company to go public, first job in Silicon Valley. And this was back in the era of symbolic computing. Uh, symbolic AI, and so an era called expert systems, where we were actually encapsulating human knowledge into these AI systems. And uh, they were powerful, but on a very small scale, and ultimately could not scale uh, due to bandwidth, compute power, and the fact that they relied on a small group of experts. But the kinds of problems we were solving were interesting. Uh, for example, reinventing 
the way factory floors worked, um, helping. I was deployed out to NASA to help them implement these systems for uh, navigation, um, a whole range of different use cases. But that that uh, first era of AI was interesting because we were actually relying on human beings to understand how to make things work better. And that, at that company, actually, the CTO, the chief technology officer, and ultimately the CEO, Tom Taylor, is now my co-founder at CrowdSmart. So let me fast forward to CrowdSmart. The AI winter descended uh, after the expert system era. I went off and did a variety of different things. And then we came back together and co-founded CrowdSmart a few years ago. CrowdSmart is actually using expert, human expert knowledge, but in a way that instead of relying on a few experts, actually integrates an infinite number of people together, reasoning, deliberating, and the AI acts like a facility and ultimately helps those humans solve problems, make decisions, make predictions more accurately with less bias. And it does this by actually optimizing for diversity. Cognitive diversity, the diversity of ultimately, very importantly, the group of people that are participating, and the diversity of ideas. And so the the system is actually presenting different people's ideas, asking open-ended questions about whatever the decision they're trying to make or prediction or problem they're trying to solve, and then letting people respond with open-ended answers, sentence or two. And the system very quickly is identifying different ideas, turning, using large language models, actually, to turn those responses into meaning, optimizing for diversity of meaning. So as you're using the system, you'll see, once you submit your ideas or your answers, you'll see seven other ideas. And if you can rank, uh, upvote, uh, rank those ideas, the, the ones you agree with. If you don't agree with any, you click, skip, get another seven, you get another seven. And very quickly, what the system is doing is learning where the points of alignment are. It's finding points of alignment, but it's constantly optimizing for diversity of ideas. So it's also seeking outlier ideas. It's making sure that every response gets an equal, quote unquote, at bat, that everyone's idea has an equal chance to be presented and ranked. And as it's doing this very rapidly, it's learning really what the best collective insights of that group is for whatever the again the decision they're trying to make or problem they're trying to solve by the way this is identities are masked so again you're you're optimizing for cognitive diversity and reducing ingrained bias which is one of the greatest challenges of course to accurate decision making we all have we all carry ingrained bias with us is the facilitator so to be clear, because I think it's really important to emphasize this point, the system itself doesn't necessarily know doesn't know anything about the thing it's going to be facilitating. It's just facilitating the facilitation of whatever the problem is you're trying to solve. So we could sit down and try to figure out what's the best way to deliver clean water in Rwanda, or we've been thinking about you know, what's the best way to balance the budget for the federal government. And if we had a sufficiently diverse group of people, this system would help surface the places where we have some kind of uh, um, common ground. Is that is that a, way, a fair way to characterize it? That's right. That's right. And you are optimizing for diversity of experience and knowledge, but at the same time, you know, 
the people who are participating in this will have relevant insight and could be from any angle. Let me give you an example. We actually started the company CrowdSmart with a problem we wanted to solve, which is if you're an entrepreneur and you're raising money, you need to know someone in the venture capital industry to raise uh, your um, sort of founding capital. Otherwise, you're out of luck, which is kind of crazy when you think about all the talented entrepreneurs, all the problems need to be solved, all the capital, but it, it flows through this tiny relationship straw. So we thought, could we create a collective intelligence AI-powered model of actually doing diligence so we could you know, assemble groups of people who have expertise, relevant domain expertise for whatever the given company was, and then use the AI as a facilitator to identify the best, highest insights of those, those people, that group of people for each company. So we actually built the core technology, built a community of about 2,500 people, uh, raised a small fund because we knew we needed to be able to deploy funds to test the predictive accuracy and then track uh, whether that, that combination of human and machine intelligence was, was better than sort of typical VC returns. And we deployed uh, capital to about 30 companies over a period of about 18 months. And then we watched what happened. And again, the way this worked is uh, the, the group of people, usually 35 to 45 people, would be presented with a particular startup company. They would get access to all the typical diligence materials. They could have live Q&As with the founders, all the stuff that usually goes on when a venture capital firm is evaluating a company. But in this case, it was 35 to 45 at a time. It was all virtual. It was all over Zoom, usually two to three weeks. So this is asynchronous as well. And they would participate in this open-ended discussion about whether this company what the odds were of a profitable return for this company. And it was drilling down on all the stuff that matters like team, traction, product market fit, and so forth. It turns out this approach was over 80% accurate at predicting which companies would go from seed stage funding to the Series A or a significant increase in valuation. And interestingly, also over 40% of the high scoring companies ended up being underrepresented founders uh, leading these companies, which was a side effect of reducing ingrained bias. It's not that the teams doing the evaluations couldn't see these were underrepresented founders. It's that instead of the questions about where'd you go to school, who do you know, why are you here? Instead of the relationship being the focus, it was tell me about team, product market fit, traction, so forth. So based on the strength of that result, we realized there's something here that's, there's a very strong signal. There's something that's really working here. Typical venture returns are more like 20 to 30% versus uh, over 80% accurate. So that's an example of um, instrumenting a decision-making process, optimizing diversity. For example, one of the companies, a company out of UC Berkeley called Cocoon Cam, using AI vision technology to detect sudden infant death syndrome, infant heart rate and breathing, we had AI vision experts, we had professional investors in the medical device space, we had people who understand how to take a product like that into Walmart and big retailers, we had NICU nurses, we had parents. So each person had equally relevant but diverse perspective and knowledge about an insight about whether this product might work in the market and whether the company might actually succeed. So that's an example of instrumenting a reasoning process, a collective reasoning process, which is essentially what the AI was doing very rapidly. It's doing sampling. That's what presenting seven reasons or seven ideas at a time is doing very rapidly. It can identify what are the key points of alignment, ensure that the quiet voices are heard, the loud ones don't dominate, 
and identify the best, highest knowledge of that group about the given outcome that they're seeking. Yeah. So, so the success of that, we just we decided to productize the core technology and make it possible to use for anything, not just startup investing. Okay. So, but in the startup investment context, so um, you have a particular company. What's the time from exposing your rankers or deliberators to the point at which you've come to a decision about it? It, it you you can decide. Do you want to do it? You know. In real time, do you mm-hmm. want to do it over a few hours, days, weeks, months? Um, it's asynchronous. Uh, it can be synchronous, but it works best when it's asynchronous because one of the power, one of the powers or the benefits of this approach is people can think, respond, then see other people's ideas go away, think, change their mind, mm-hmm. come back, disagree, mm-hmm. um, and actually engage in a collective deliberative process around whatever the topic is. It can be as fast or slow as you want. In the 80%, the greater than 80% return case, what was the amount of time that they were deliberating on those subjects? Two to three weeks. Two to three weeks. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's asynchronous in the sense you're just getting like a text message on your phone that sort of says, here's where we are, or what was the technology precisely? It's an application. It's Mm -hmm. very intuitive and easy to interact with. It's basically you're presented with an opportunity to engage, you click, you engage, and you're immediately uh, provided with a question. Do you think in this case, do you think this is a compelling investment opportunity? This is after you've seen the, the pitch from the founders. Mm-hmm. Do, you think mm-hmm. that, do you think this is a compelling investment opportunity? If so, yes. Uh, if, if yes, why? Um, if no, why not? And that's, that's the initial prompt. You provide your input, again, a sentence or two, not a lot of uh, you know, effort required. Then, once you do that, you're presented with other people's ideas, seven at a time, and this is uh, using a a sampling algorithm. And those seven ideas or um, responses from others are optimized for diversity of thought. And you can rank those ideas. If you agree with any, you upvote, you rank them higher. If not, skip, get another seven. Again, that process repeats. And very rapidly using this, something called Bayesian learning, the system is understanding what the points of alignment are, but it's continually optimizing for diversity of thought. So it's doing these two things at once. The thing the best the best human facilitators do, which best human facilitators are always seeking points of alignment. Where are we agreeing? But what did we miss? What about mm-hmm. what about the crazy ideas? Mm-hmm. What about the uh, the ideas that aren't yet popular? Make sure those get a chance to be heard. And uh, ultimately, after the system does this a few cycles, it's it's able to identify the essentially the collective mind, a map of the collective mind of the group about that issue. Okay, so, so in some sense, it's it's perfectly aligned with what we imagine the best democratic systems are trying to accomplish, in that you've got a wide diversity of people who are participating. But the system is supposed to be identifying the places where we are aligned, but shaking them up a bit by making sure that we're considering the widest range of input in coming to that decision. So in a democracy, we might have an initial view, and then somebody comes along and says, what about the worker? And they're, oh, yes, what about the worker indeed? And so then you think again about it, like in, in the face of that. But after this process of deliberation, we should be able to know what we, in fact, have all coalesced around. And, and that's what the system is building. That's exactly right. Um, the reason why we 
have found this difficult to do. I mean, sort of broadly speaking, we haven't been able to do this without before large language models is it's really difficult to manage multiple lines of communication. And uh, Brooke's law says that when you have about 100 people deliberating, that's 50,000 different lines of communication. That is almost impossible to make sense of unless you have large language models that can actually make meaning out of human language. And so what we've done, and this is Tom Kaler's work, he's, he's our chief scientist, co-founder, and this is kind of his life's work, is bring together large language models and collective intelligence. And use instead of using large language models to ingest existing text, historical existing text, which is what ChatGPT and these tools do, very powerful, but often uh, can be inaccurate. Instead of using it on historical text, what we're doing is using large language models on conversation, human conversation, generating human conversation through open-ended questions, letting people, in fact, discuss, collectively deliberate, and the large language models are in turning that conversation into meaning. And again, optimizing for diversity of thought, which is how you get to greater accuracy, you reduce bias, and you get to more accurate results. Okay, so you did it originally in the context of this really dramatic example of uh, um, venture capital investing, and you, you showed that it was better than the standard efforts to do the same thing. Is, you know, many people at that point would have said, wow, <laughs> we've built a printing press that's printing money. Let's just take, let's just grow the fund and just do this for the rest of time and we'll become the richest people in the world. You just, you decided not to do that, um, which I know you, that's not surprising to me, to me but um, it might be surprising to others. Um, but I don't want to understand your psychology. I want to understand what you think you've facilitated by opening it up? Like, where else now is this being used, or where do you want it to be used? And and, and what is your, what are your dreams? Like, how do you think this changes the world? So, we realized this is a powerful technology, and we could, in fact, become venture capitalists, make the technology proprietary, raise a big fund. Uh, but that was not interesting, because the, the, the need for people to collectively problem-solve is greater than ever, um, not to state the obvious. We have complex, great challenges, uh, broadly speaking, that require human beings to deliberate effectively. And whether it's climate change or democracy or impact investing or, you know, scientific discovery, or, you know, the list goes on and on. The most important element in achieving breakthroughs is our ability to collectively reason, to to together to be able to identify our best, highest knowledge. And so this is a system that does that. Uh, we, we are particularly interested in using this. There are two sort of avenues. One is commercial. The other is, uh, I, I call it social impact. Um, the commercial applications are, are, again, really almost endless. You know, companies working together to, uh, with their customers to innovate products, uh, investors making investment decisions with less bias and greater accuracy, you know, uh, a very wide range of use cases. And in fact, CrowdSmart is engaging with a wide range of those kinds of use cases. At the same time, when we think about democracy and participatory democracy and community engagement, this is an incredibly powerful tool that really needs needs to be available. 
uh, at the local level, at, you know, um, ultimately any level to help people problem solve in their own communities. And, and so we've we actually recently founded a, a nonprofit, a 501c3 information called Common Good AI. And we're collaborating with a variety of different organizations, other companies, researchers to engage in these initiatives and also to ensure that there is a deep uh, reservoir of, of research that is developing around what really is third generation AI. Um, and this is as defined by DARPA, but it's human empowered AI. It's a combination of human machine intelligence and deliberative democracy to me is one of the most important areas we need to focus third generation AI. So, so you would, for example, imagine you had a community. I live in Brookline. We have town meeting in Brookline. That's 300 people who are elected to be members of town meeting. Um, and uh, it, it discusses problems, which everybody here in Brookline is aware of. We could imagine a parallel process that used common good AI to address the same issue, right? So let's say they have a question about what's the right way to, uh, what, what's the right school uh, building project we should adopt? And you could imagine this then engaging with, uh, is it, there's no selection up front, right, about the representativeness of who's participating. It's it's a diversity of participants, right? And and so how many would have to be participating? What's the way you would structure that decision? How do you imagine it would flow? So you want a minimum of around a, a dozen, you know, 15, 20, then the system starts to be predictably accurate. You want to have at least that many people because you want to have that cognitive diversity. Um, you do want to optimize for diversity of thought. You can invite as many people as you want. So the system is scalable, infinitely scalable, essentially. Um, doesn't matter how many people. And the more people you have, the more, the more accurate um, it is. Uh, ultimately, a couple dozen, three, four dozen people, you, you've got enough of a sample size that it is consistently, predictably accurate. Um, the way you instrument the, the process is decide on the question. You, you, it's sort of the open-ended question you're trying to answer. So if it's a, you know, a new housing project, should we build whatever the project is in this area? What do you think? Yes or no? What's the why? And it's always about the why behind what you think. Mm -hmm. uh, then, again, first question you answer without seeing other people's input, but as soon as you do answer, then you start to see other people's input. Then you can start the ranking process. Then you can drill down on specific uh, questions, sort of sub-questions. So should it be in a different neighborhood? Um, should it be a different size? You know, all, and if so, you know, if yes, why? If not, if no, why not? So that process is uh, very open-ended, simple, intuitive process that and it's optimizing for diversity of thought so you're constantly presented with you know ideas that may not agree with yours mm -hmm. the most the best outcomes are where people might have very divergent points of view um, coming in and they they might they might not really fully agree on the perfect outcome but they're able to align around an enlightened consensus, which to me is one of the most important elements of, well, problem solving and and participatory democracy in a functioning, healthy democracy, is finding a solution that might not be 
everything precisely that you think should happen. But it is a, a, you know, a consensus that is something you can live with and that, in fact, integrates new ideas. And that's when I say enlightened consensus. It's a process that brings you to a new outcome that you might not have, you wouldn't have been able to come to without engaging with others and learning what they know and understanding why they think what they think. Mm -hmm. So that process of ultimately finding this enlightened consensus is what the system is doing. And that is, to me, a core element of a healthy democracy. Okay, so when we say that we get to an answer, what what are the ways that we are confident it's the right answer. So, for example, with the housing project, we could imagine um, taking a vote at the beginning, should we build the housing project or not? And that vote could be 60% no and 40% yes. But at the end of this deliberation, you might have a completely different result. So, what's the way in which, as a decision maker, you say, actually, the deliberation answer is the one I should embrace and the voting answer is the one I should reject, because they obviously won't even most of the time be the same thing. So, and one thing I did not mention, but it's important to say, is this is both a quantitative and also qualitative uh, response. So you can score um, what, you know, your, do you agree with this? If so, kind of on a scale of one to 100, what do you think? Um, the system is also scoring responses quantitatively, and it's, and then you're providing the qualitative reasons why you think what you think. And it's the system is turning that those qualitative reasons into themes or uh, points of alignment. So to answer your question, you could take a vote at the beginning. Then people engage in this deliberative process. You take a vote at the end and you are generally going to be in a different place uh, because there's been an exchange of ideas. The system is identified what people are actually lining up around. It's again, ensuring the outlier ideas have been heard. And so you can, at the end, ultimately take another vote and see where people are. But the system is doing that in an integrated way throughout. So it is turning that conversation, that qualitative conversation into a quantitative score, into ultimately a collective vote of the group, a map of the collective mind. Mm-hmm. So it's do, it's inherently doing what what you set out to do at the beginning, which is take a vote. So we we've done in the context of um, deliberative um, an infrastructure that's you know facilitating face to face but virtual deliberation. We've done um, experiments around different topics, um, and for example, we've done uh, a lot of deliberation around the question of the electoral college. And the deliberation around the Electoral College is very distinctive because we've we've got three solutions, but let's just put two on the table right here. One solution, which is basically um, national popular vote. And the second solution is fractional proportional vote. So you basically say, if you get 43% of the vote in California, you get exactly 43% of the electoral vote in California. Um, The first solution, national popular vote, is something that everybody's talked about, or at least if anybody knows what the Electoral College is, they've talked about the idea of replacing it with just a national popular vote. And that solution is very um, partisan. Um, Republicans don't like it, and Democrats do like it. But the fractional proportional vote is a solution most people have not even thought about. Um, And because they've not even thought about it, there's not really a strong partisan alignment. 
And in fact, by the end of the conversation, we find overwhelmingly everybody likes the idea, regardless of their partisan base. So deliberation doesn't really matter much in the first case, because people are kind of committed to their partisan view, and at the end, they're still committed. But in the second case, deliberation does a lot. Um, so in your, if we applied the same technology, if we applied your technology to the same questions, is there any reason to believe you'd get over the partisan commitment, or would you be vulnerable to the same kind of partisan bias that, um, that we saw in the context of our deliberation? So this is uh, an important element of the system, which is you, as a participant, have the opportunity to learn uh, about whatever the background is on the topic. So in the case of startup investing, for example, all the participants got a chance to meet the founders, see the diligence materials, see the business plan and the pitch deck and the background you know, uh, profiles of the founders and so forth. That's important context for them to be able to then engage in that deliberative process. In this case, they would have the opportunity to learn about a different form of the Electoral College or a different application of the Electoral College. And upon learning about that, now they have a new insight and are able to come to the collective deliberation, the collective reasoning process with that understanding and new knowledge. So that's an important part of this whole system is presenting people with important information and background and insights that might uh, enable them to come into this collective reasoning process uh, with a new perspective or a different perspective or deeper understanding. Yeah, but, but I guess it's an empirical question whether in fact, or it's an empirical psychological question, whether in fact they hear the other side or have they even internalized. You know, one, one of the things psychology teaches us is especially smart people, are really good at um, working around contrary evidence. Like, so, you know, some people, like, look at climate change and they think, oh, it's the ignorant people who don't believe in climate change. No, that's not true. It's, in fact, the smart people who are really good at, like, hearing the data, hearing the evidence, and then saying, actually, this is probably because X, Y, and Z, so I'm not going to believe the evidence um, even still. Um, so I, I imagine that, you know, once you've done 100,000 of these in many different contexts, we'll have a better sense of its ability to move people beyond their partisan priors. But it, it, there's no reason, I guess, to, to believe that we have certain confidence that it would move them beyond their partisan bias. Or, or do you have that confidence? The, the, an important element of this is the question, why? Uh, so why do you think this? And in this process of collective reasoning, people express their, their, that background around their reasoning behind their belief. That effort can actually move the needle because I actually, as a participant, happen to have insight on that. I thought, in fact, I, like you, I thought X, Y, Z, but because of my experience doing ABC, I, in fact, learned that's not true, and here's why. So that's what people do in real life, and that's how, a, you know, a conversation can lead to an outcome that's that's a productive one. So that's what the system is constantly probing for, is why. Why do you think that? And when, when you're presented with the reasoning behind someone's idea, so they're not just, it's not about your identity, it's not about, um, you know, clinging to some political party, but instead it is your experience and what you've learned out there in the real world about this particular topic and how you were moved 
from one point of view to another point of view. And sh- when you share that, that's when minds can change. When people feel it's safe to disagree and say, look, I don't agree with you and here's why. Suddenly, that uh, breakthroughs can happen. So it's not just mudslinging, but it's actually understanding why somebody thinks something. That's what the system is constantly doing and probing for. It, but, but technically, they're free to express that view because they're not in any direct way identified, right? So, uh, so if we imagine, you know, the most polarizing partisan type of debates that exist in American politics today, like, is Donald Trump guilty of some crime? you could express your views and not fear the other side um, punishing you for those views. But I wonder whether you've run experiments where it's questions like that that are being deliberated on, and have we seen movement or people kind of just digging in their heels because they have lots of ways of rationalizing the counter-evidence? So people do dig in their heels, uh, but this is what's important is that the people who don't just dig in their heels, but actually open their minds and say, well, you know, I thought that there might be a different way of looking at that point. Here's, here's uh, another angle. That perspective, that person's perspective, might, might attract a lot of upvotes or a higher rank because others participating in this collective reasoning process see that someone's not just digging their heels in, they're actually thinking this through, or they've had a, a, an experience or an insight that changed them and, and they're sharing what changed their mind about this. That idea then might start to get momentum. And that rises in rank uh, in the system in a way that someone digging their heels in and very clearly digging their heels in, their ideas won't rise. And so the system, the AI facilitator, is on the back end creating a whole map of who's most influential uh, as ranked by other people's votes. And that system will not keep teeing up someone who's just digging their heels in because they're, you know, they're sort of stuck on an idea. It will, it will rank the ideas that are voted up by everyone else. And those ideas are more likely to be someone who's not digging their heels in, but who's actually thinking in a way that, or expressing an idea that is richer, deeper, uh, provides context, and again, the why behind what, why you think something. Mm-hmm. What you so, think. so give us a sense of like how many of these con- these deliberations are happening, and what's the range of them. And again, I'm not interested in the commercial context, which is obviously um, it's uh, itself very interesting, but in the the more public-facing context that you're committed and open in, um, um, I'm sorry, a common good common AI. Common good AI, uh, yeah. So we're just launching uh, several projects right now um, in the process of uh, getting them off the ground. One is in the city of Cincinnati. And uh, an MD there at Children's Hospital uh, grew up in the neighborhoods, in, in, you know, was in the life himself, on the streets, dealing with gun violence, went off and got an MD, came back, became an ER doctor at Children's Hospital and was finding himself sewing these kids up at night. Then they go off into the war zone the next day in the streets. And he realized this is a, a system-level problem. We need to get everybody involved in this who has a perspective on the problem. What are the root causes of gun violence in Cincinnati? What are some of the corrective actions we could take? So this is just, in, again, we're raising money right now uh, to get this off the ground, but it is a combination of community leaders, uh, kids who are actually in the life, uh, members of gangs, 
parole officers, social workers, doctors, a, a whole range of people, each of whom has an equally relevant but important perspective. So that's one initiative. The second one is a, a small northeastern town, not too far from where you are, <clears throat> a logging town, uh, historically. Um, and there's deep red and deep blue, uh, and they they now are dealing with a situation where uh, some very wealthy investors have come in and bought the land around this town. And they all want to preserve their forest, but for different reasons. If you're, uh, you know, a, a hunter, you want to make sure that forest is available. If you're an environmentalist, you care about carbon capture. Whatever your reasons are, however, you share a common goal. So that's an initiative that is also in the process of getting off the ground. Um, there's a third initiative right now at Children's Hospital, which is focused on health equity and getting the entire employee base of Children's Hospital in Cincinnati to participate in a collective reasoning session around how we increase uh, services available to everyone in the community, how we provide a more equitable health service offering to the, the entire city. So these are multiple different projects. There are others that are in the process of getting funded. So we're right at the beginning of launching these initiatives, but there's tremendous interest in engaging people, in expressing their understanding, knowledge, experience about whatever the topic is they're trying to solve or address or resolve. All of these initiatives have a common theme, which is everyone's coming at the problem from a different perspective. But each person's voice is equally important, and everybody's voice will be heard. So we're very excited about the potential to apply this to community engagement, participatory democracy at both a local level and beyond. So imagine you were, um, you know, imagine town meeting of Brookline said, okay, we want to try this for a question about where to place a school or whether to change the form of government to become a mayor system, whatever. Um, and and they wanted to come to you and, and engage you to do it. What would they need to bring to you? I mean, obviously, they need to re- raise resources to make it possible, but what kind of resources? And, and what would you give them to make this um, engagement possible? So they would need to identify who's participating in this process. Could be the entire community. Again, no limit on the number of people who can participate. They would need to decide on what the question is they're trying to answer or the decision they're trying to make. So that's pretty simple. Um, there would need to be some set of background materials or you know information that would be relevant for everyone to have access to, to get a little informed about the issue, the topic. And that's it. I mean... People, question, background materials, and that's it. And, and the system is, once it starts, is acting like the best human facilitator in, in enabling people to engage in that deliberative collective reasoning process. It's pretty simple. So, yeah. so the materials could be like a, like a YouTube video like that yep. sort of lays the issue out. That's right. So they have the YouTube video. They have a list of 500 people from the community who say they want to participate in this could actually be town meeting itself. Town meeting could say it wants to do its deliberation through this. Um, is there a website right now where you, or is there an app right now that they would come to you and say, we want to do this? And you say, okay, we'll set it up and you'll do it. Or is it self 
generated or how exactly technically would it work? Yeah, it's, it's seamless. Um, essentially, the technology enables you to click a button and be instantly in the app. So the, the product exists and, and is available for them, in this case, to use. They would integrate it as, uh, into whatever you know, website or application they already have or just have it use, used as a standalone application. Uh, so it can be both embedded and also exist as a standalone app, whatever form they preferred. Uh, but that's essentially that's it. There's no elaborate setup. There's there's no kind of uh, kind of set of hurdles they have to get through to use the technology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, is there a place right now people can go and see examples, or is are you still um, standing up the fr- uh, public facing part of this? Yeah, we're in the process of getting the public facing part of Common Good AI set up on. Uh, CrowdSmart, you can learn about the technology, and that's, again, uh, set commercial applications. Um, but the combination of CrowdSmart and Common Good AI will give you a background on what this is, how it works, um, and how to get involved. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, this this podcast, I'm not sure exactly when this, vers- this episode comes out, but it's this year. Um, do you imagine like in 2024, we're going to have a bunch of different communities struggling or working through local issues on common good AI? I'm very hopeful that that will be the case. And that's certainly our intent. Um, and what's happening is that we're being approached by a number of different organizations, communities that have, are learning about this, hearing about it, and want to use it. So right now we want to make sure we've got the, the structure, the resources, the foundation to be able to deliver on, on, doing, that, on doing that, making it available. And uh, that is exactly why we founded Common Good AI. We realized this is, this is more than one company. Uh, the potential is immense. The need is huge. The urgency is there because uh, we need better tools, you know, Social media, you know, has failed us in many ways and in many ways, you know, uh, been destructive to uh, a healthy functioning democracy. We need new tools. And so the answer to the question is absolutely. That is that is our really what's fueling us is the belief that the world needs this. We need to get it out. We need to make it available to communities. Healthy democracies need new tools. Uh, and we actually now can use large language models, AI, in completely new ways. It was not possible before. Uh, and so okay. we're 100% committed to making that happen. Okay, so let's imagine, let's stand up four models for deliberating about an issue. Um, and again, keeping at the town meeting level. So we, we start with the one that exists right now, which is a meeting where people show up and people stand up and they make their arguments. That's one thing. A second would be what Jim Fishkin describes, which is to say, let's take a random representative selection of the public, let's bring them together into a space, let's give them the information they need to deliberate, and then they deliberate. Um, A third would be the version of Jim Fishkin's work that we've been developing, which is um, to allow virtual deliberation. Um, It shares with Fishkin the idea that people are going to be deliberating face-to-face, but it um, suffers the same weakness from your perspective the Fishkins would present, which is that it's like, um, you know, all the internal biases that we bring to deliberations would be present even if you're doing it virtually versus in real space. But 
there's some advantages. Um, I think one of the advantages we hadn't thought about but became really obvious was the safety sense. Like, there's a lot of people who are not be eager to, like, show up on a Sunday night at a basement of some church to deliberate about some issue because they don't know who's there and they don't themselves feel confident or safe to go to that place. But if all you had to say is, like, just, you know, log on, it'll be like a Zoom platform, and if you don't like it, you can turn it off, but it's in your own house and nobody's going to um, stalk you or, um, you know, um, create any risk for you. If you do that, that that's probably an advantage. And then the fourth example is yours. So you have the same materials, but um, everybody is working from an app, and it's asynchronous, and you have time to reflect and think about it. Um, right. I take it you would say the advantage of the app is that you're neutralizing all these implicit biases that we know people bring to uh, deliberation about that. I imagine it's also much cheaper in the sense of people's time. I mean, synchronous time is extremely costly. I right. mean, who is really hard to bring the right kind of people together at any particular time. But if you could do it over the course of three weeks, we all can find the moments when we need to to sort of log in and do it. So it would lower the cost of time. And I imagine it also just lowers the the actual cost. I mean, the cost of running the deliberation. I mean, I, I imagine you're using a lot of electricity to make the AIs work, but um, but it's actually objectively a cheaper process. Is that, is that a fair summary of that? That is fair. And there's one other important point, which is that you can't promote your idea, your own idea. Um, it's, the system doesn't allow you to do that. Other people can promote your idea, but you can't promote your idea. So that means wow. that hmm. you're eliminating one of the biggest challenges to in-person um, deliberation and, you know, sort of the traditional social media approaches too. The, the algorithm is deliberately uh, developed so that you cannot put your idea out there again and again and again. Um, and the system, again, is enabling others to do that, but not you. So that's, that's an important point that I think um, is really critical to both the accuracy of the system and also the reduction of, of kind of the bias that comes from people who are very effective at promoting their own, their own <laughs> ideas. One other thing to mention, and that is that these the systems don't take a ton of energy because what, what you don't have to do is train it on, train the system on massive amounts of text. Instead, mm -hmm. it's, it's the, the system is working adaptively and learning um, from evidence and doing sampling. And, and uh, that process does not take tons of compute power, but that's just a side point. So, Kim, it's extremely exciting. Um, you know, in some way, as I mentioned in the introduction, you've had this incredible career of always kind of showing up at the most exciting inflection points of arc of technical development. And here you are again. And, you know, as, as someone who's deeply committed to figuring out what's the best way to revive a concept of democracy that we all could be excited about, um, this is an extremely exciting uh, project to, to begin to play with and experiment with. And so I'm going to be an adopter, early adopter, frequent um, uh, um, player to try to push it into different contexts. And, uh, and let's see where it goes. But it's an incredibly hopeful example of AI. 
very different from the dark stories that we've been talking about <laughs> so far. <laughs> yep, indeed. And thank you, Larry. It's uh, it's an, uh, really honored to be here and to be able to, to share with you and others what we're working on. And we'd love to collaborate with any and all who want to be part of this. So people who want to follow you, is there a website yet or a, yeah. pl- a way that they can? CommonGoodAI.org. Okay, great. CommonGoodAI.org. And then the company is CrowdSmart.ai. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Kim, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Larry. This has been the 22nd episode of the season five of the podcast, Another Way. These podcasts are produced by equal citizens in an abstract sense. They are produced literally by Josh Elstro of Elstro Productions. You can find out more about Equal Citizens at EqualCitizens.us. Give us your thoughts, your feedback, share this podcast there as broadly as you can. And if you can, donate to help us keep this work going. What I do, I do pro bono, which is fancy lawyer talk for without pay, but we have a team that needs pay to keep them going, to keep Equal Citizens alive. So check the donation button at equalcitizens.us. Thanks again, and stay tuned. <laughs>